بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته اللهم انفعنا بما علمتنا وعلمنا ما ينفعنا وارزقنا علما تنفعنا به أمين رب العالمين الحمد لله ثم الحمد لله We continuing tonight with the fiqh of salah Bab Sifatul Salah with the chapter of the description of the Salah. It, is, it will be the last lesson on this chapter bi ta'ala from the book Buluhul Maram. So um, we are at the end of the description of the Salah. Last week we covered again some of the adhkar and some of the du'as that the Prophet has said and encouraged us to do after the Salah. Correct? Um, so we're continuing with these and then we will move on to the last two hadith. So the next hadith is narrated from Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiyallahu anhu anna rasulallahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqala lahu Mu'adh ibn Jabal yes Mu'adh ibn Jabal one of the most famous of the sahaba and one of the fuqaha of the sahaba meaning one of the scholars and most knowledgeable of the sahaba and what's what's the famous story of Mu'adh is that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sent him to Yemen as a, as a da'i and as a teacher and as a leader to go to Yemen and to, to invite people to Islam and to teach them about the deen of Islam and so forth. So obviously the Prophet ﷺ took somebody who was knowledgeable, who had hikmah, who was strong, who was a leader to go to Yemen and to, and to you know, be their teacher and be the person who invites them to Islam and so forth. Mu'adh ibn Jabal. So this hadith says usika ya muadh la tad'anna dubura kulla salatin an taqula allahumma a'inni ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husni ibadatik rawahu ahmad wa abu dawud wa nasa'i bi sanadin qawi that rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam he advised muadh and he instructed muadh and said to him do not leave at the end of every salah the statement or the saying Allahumma a'inni ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husni ibadatik in one narration he took the hand of Mu'adh and he said uhibbuka fillah ya Mu'adh that I love you for the sake of Allah O Mu'adh and then he gave him this advice showing this again the status of Mu'adh ibn Jabal that he was close to the Prophet and beloved to him and as we know if somebody is beloved to a person, that person will only wish the best for him. So in this case here, this was the Prophet the most merciful of, of mankind, and this was somebody beloved to him, and he advised him with this. Meaning this is something, you know, with great virtue, something of utmost importance, this dhikr to be said at the end of the salah. So before we go into the, the discussion of the hadith or the explanation of this dhikr, we again, Ibn Uthaymin goes into what's meant by Dubura Kulla Salatin. Right? And Kulli Salatin. And we've spoken about this previously. What is meant by at the end of the Salah? By these ahadith that mention the end of the Salah. What is meant by this? Right. Before the Taslim, right? Before the end of the Salah. This is the view of many of the ulama. And other ulama said it means 
after the salah, right? Um, what was the, the view that I said is, you could say in the middle? Who can remember this view that I said is the view that I personally follow in the view of certain ulama, Sheikh Salih Huzan, Sheikh Abdul Karim Al Khudair, and others? They said, so one group said what? Before the taslim. Okay? Another group said after the taslim. Ibn Uthaymin's view is that if it's a dua, it should be done before the taslim. And if it's a dhikr, it should be done after the taslim. That's the view of Ibn Uthaymin. But the, I don't agree with the Shaykh on this view. Right? Other ulama said <coughs> both is valid. Both times is, is okay to utter these duas. Before or after. However, if it's a dua, then it's better to be recited before the taslim. Why? Because number one, we know that that's a time wherein du'as are accepted. That position in the salah specifically is a time where, we, where the Prophet encouraged us to make du'a. Because it's a time where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts du'as. At the end of the salah, just before the taslim. Understand? So hence, if you're making a du'a in that time, it's the better time. Before the taslim. Not after, before. Taslim is assalamu alaikum Right? So before that taslim, this is the time we encourage to make dua. Right? It can be prophetic duas are the best, and even after that you can make dua for anything. And this is why we said it's a, it's actually the sunnah is to to lengthen this period. Right? To lengthen this period. That's the sunnah. It's not that you just say Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad kama salli ala Ibrahim, etc. And innaka hamidu majid. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. No, there's no, we wouldn't say your salah is invalid, obviously not, but it means you're not acting upon this sunnah of that dua at that point, at that time. And I think the norm here in the masajid is, it's very quick, you know, there's no dua really made there because most people are not taught this. But this is actually one of the best times to make dua, before the taslim. So we know the one that we said we must make, Allah ma'ini a'udhubika min adhabi jahannam wa min adhabi al-qabr, we explain that. Then there are others that we went through. Right? This is another one that we could make in this position. That we could make in this position. If you make it in this position, great. If you make it after the salah, also great. But maybe not as great. But still very good. You will still get the, the virtue of fulfilling the sunnah bi'idhnillah ta'ala. Understand? So whether you make it before or after, the most important thing is that you make it. If you make it before, we say that's a little bit better because it's in the salah. Something that's done within the salah is better than a dua that's done out of the salah. Because you're in a state of salah that's a more virtuous state to be in. Understand this point? So <coughs> that is the, the, the strongest view on the issue and Allah knows best. That it can be done at both times, either before or after. But it's better to do it before. At the same time, we could argue and say... We're not going to make all that du'as, right? We're only going to make one or two or three maybe in reality. So those that we did not do, we should then keep it for after the salah. If you have learned, you know, majority of them or all of them, insha'Allah. Tayyib. So what is the dhikr? Allahumma a'inni ala dhikrika. Allahumma means we know, oh Allah. Ya Allah, oh Allah. A'inni. A'inni means 
What do we, we should all know this dhikr, right? We all know it? Right? A'inni means help me, assist me. Assist me. In what? Facilitate for me. What? Ala dhikrika. Your remembrance. Your dhikr. Help me to perform your dhikr. Help me with your dhikr, with your remembrance. So firstly, the word dhikr means remembrance, to remember. In this case, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And a dhikr can be done in at least three ways. Dhikr of the heart, dhikr of the tongue, and dhikr of the limbs. Dhikr of the heart is what? When you think about Allah, you remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to yourself. You think in your mind, you think of the signs of Allah, you reflect over the Quran, you reflect over Allah's names, His attributes, over who Allah is, over the favors of Allah upon you. This is dhikr of the heart. Right? And many of the scholars have stated, dhikr of the heart is better than dhikr of the tongue. And a dhikr of the tongue that's void of dhikr of the heart, actually loses its value. So we should strive to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from our hearts and then on the tongue as well. So when we say our adhkar, subhanallah, walhamdulillah, wa la ilaha illallah, wallahu akbar, those four statements I just said, hadith says it's the most beloved statements to Allah. The four most beloved statements to Allah is subhanallah, walhamdulillah, wa la ilaha illallah, wallahu akbar. Right? We can say Allahumma salli ala Muhammad, send salutations upon the... This is dhikr. We can say just la ilaha illallah. We can say subhanallah wa bihamdi, subhanallah al-azim. The two words that the Prophet said is, huh? easy and light on the tongue, but heavy on the scales. Subhanallah wa bihamdi, subhanallah al-azim. And various other adhkar. You can make istighfar, that's also a dhikr. Right? Astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, etc. is a dhikr. And whatever other dhikr you want to make. Quran is a dhikr. Understand? But we need to combine it with the dhikr of the, of the heart. And this is why we always explain what does subhanallah mean? What does alhamdulillah mean? What does Allahu Akbar mean? What does la ilaha illallah mean? Because it's very important to understand the meaning. Because if you don't understand the meaning, how are you going to reflect over what you are saying? The same with Quran, we explain the ayat of Quran, tafsir and so forth, we try to teach here and there for ourselves as well, it's not to say that we are perfect, no, for ourselves, so that when we <coughs> collectively, when we recite and when we make adhkar, at least we can do it with some understanding, some contemplation, some reflection over these ayat, so that it can have a proper impact on us. But lip service doesn't value, doesn't really um, impact much. The value is taken away. So it's very important that we try to focus on the dhikr of the heart more than we focus on the dhikr of the, of the tongue. And then we of course have the dhikr of our limbs as well. Your sujood, your ruku', your hajj, what you physically, those physical deeds that you do. These are physical actions. This is also a dhikr of your limbs. You give some charity with your hand, it's a dhikr of your hand, your limbs, and so forth. Right? So all of this is included into dhikr. This is all dhikr of Allah. This is remembering Allah. Through your limbs, through your tongue, and through your heart. 
So a believer should try and remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in all of these ways. In all of these ways. Throughout the day and so forth. In fact, the hadith says, I mean, there's so many hadith that speak about the virtues of dhikr and the importance of remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But just one hadith comes to mind. Um, there was a companion who complained to the Prophet sallallahu about some of the some of the acts of worship and so forth that he found it to be a little bit heavy, a little bit difficult. He found it to be a little bit difficult. And the Prophet advised him and said to him, make sure that your tongue stays moist with the remembrance of Allah. Continue keeping your tongue moist with the remembrance of Allah. And this is what we explained right now. This is the remembrance of Allah. As if to say to him, if you just do this, you will find your affairs become easy. Your worship becomes easy. Your worship is now uh, facilitated for you. So one thing we can make to ah, yes, definitely. Allahumma a'inni ala dhikrika. Allah make it easy for us to remember him. And at the same time, another way to facilitate this is by actually remembering Allah. The more you remember Allah, the more your worship is facilitated and made easy for you. That's basically what that hadith um, over there explains. Tayyib. <coughs> So we move on. Washukrika. Shukr. We all know what is shukr. Um, gratefulness. Aid us, help us to be grateful unto you. A'inni ala dhikrika wa shukrika. To be grateful unto you. Right? And again, shukr is like a type of dhikr in reality. Shukr is a type of dhikr, right? It's a type of remembering Allah. That when you show your gratitude to Allah. So again, shukr can also be done with the heart, can also be done with the tongue, and it can also be done with your limbs. Same like dhikr, but it has a slightly different meaning, a slightly different uh, impact. So your shukr is like your response to the favors of Allah, for example. When you realize Allah, you think about the favors of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon you. You think about this ni'mah that came your way. You think how Allah facilitated something for you. How He made something easy for you. How you acquired something beneficial. Your child achieved this. Your child this. Your mother, your father. Whatever happens. We know it only comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what do we say? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah means all praise and thanks belongs to Allah. It's a type of shukr. When we say alhamdulillah, it's a type of shukr. Because we understand, we are acknowledging that this favor... It came from Allah, so why do we say all praises for Allah? And it's only because of Him. It's only because of Him we achieved what we achieved. It's only because of Him we got where we are. We only, it's only because of Him that everything is falling into place. So we say, Alhamdulillah. That's a shukr on your heart, on your tongue, sorry. And if it comes from the bottom of your heart, it's from your heart. And when you reflect over these favors and so forth, this is shukr upon your heart. And with your limbs, how do we make shukr with our limbs? We go out and we worship Allah. We show our gratefulness to Allah by worshipping Him. By increasing in good. So the more Allah blesses us, the more we're supposed to increase in goodness. This is the way it's supposed to be. When Allah blesses you, you are supposed to turn and realize this has come from Allah. Hence, I'm going to do more for the sake of Allah. To show my gratefulness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It shouldn't be that we receive a favor or a bounty or a gift or something from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we use that in the disobedience of Allah. 
that is now being ungrateful. Understand? We should use these favors, the wealth that Allah bestows upon us, our brains that Allah has bestowed upon us, our time that Allah blesses us with, our health that Allah blesses us with, all these things are blessings. We should be using that in the path of Allah, for the sake of Allah, knowing that these are favors that Allah bestowed upon us. There are others who, have not, who don't have the same favors. There are others who are longing and wishing and hoping for those favors. And there may come a time when you do not have those favors anymore. Your free time gets taken away. Your health may be taken away. Your wealth may be taken away. These things are in the hand of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Hence, it's only appropriate that we are thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through our deeds as well. Again, lip service is not is of no value if it's not followed up by per actual gratitude. It's easy to say alhamdulillah. It's good. It's also easy. We also need to follow it up with action to really show that gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We really use these favors to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's gratitude. That's true gratitude. It has to be, you know, all inclusive, your limbs, your tongue, and from the bottom of your heart. You show Allah that gratefulness. You acknowledge Him for being the, the bestower upon you and the, and the you know, ar-raziq and so forth. And then you show your gratitude unto Him. This is shukr. Right? وَقَلِيلٌ مِّنْ عِبَادِيَ الشَّكُورُ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, and few of my slaves are grateful. Few of my slaves are actually grateful. Subhanallah. <coughs> so, the alim, for example, how does he show his, great, his, his gratitude? Allah is blessed him with knowledge. He should teach people. A wealthy person, Allah blesses him with wealth. What does he have to do? Spend in the path of Allah. Give charity, assist people, pay off people's debts, and so forth. Is, you know, give relief and so forth to others. This is him showing shukr. Allah blesses you with something, use that thing and benefit others. This is shukr. Understand? So we are asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us of those who are grateful unto him. Making us of the few. Making us of that few people who are actually grateful unto him. وَحُسْنِ عِبَادَتِكَ وَحُسْنِ عِبَادَتِكَ أَعِنِّي عَلَى ذِكْرِكَ Help me to remember you, to be grateful unto you. وَحُسْنِ عِبَادَتِكَ And to worship you in the best manner. The best of worship. حُسْنِ عِبَادَتِكَ Not in any worship, the best worship. Right? Um, and this of course is of utmost importance again. This is of utmost importance once again. That... Our worship should be up to standard. We should try and always build on our worship. That not just we don't mean just to, to do more and more and more, but in terms of the quality of the of the worship, we should try and always better our ibadah. Always do things in a better way. This is husni ibadatik. Right? We know the famous um Explanation of Fudayl ibn Iyad on the ayah in Surah Al-Mulk where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says الَّذِي خَلَقَ الْمَوْتَ وَالْحَيَاةِ لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ أَيُّكُمْ أَحْسَنُ عَمَلَةِ Allah created life and death. Why? To test you and to see who from amongst you will be best in their worship. Husn, Ahsan, the best of worship. 
The same like this, this, this is what we are asking Allah basically to make us of them who worship Him in the best way. Allah created us to test us to see who will be the best of those in worship. And so what did Fudail, how did he explain this ayah? He said, what is ahsan wa amala? What is the best of worship? That which is akhlas wa aswab. Two things he said. That which is the most sincere and that which is the most correct. So two things he mentioned. Sincerity, ikhlas, and the correctness of the deed. The correctness of the deed. What does ikhlas mean? We know what it means for the sake of Allah alone. No riya, no sum'ah, no showing off, no seeking reputation through your deeds. It's only for the sake of Allah. This is ikhlas. That's the best of deed. And the most correct of deed means? What does that mean? It must be correct. It must be according to the sunnah. It cannot be an act of bid'ah. Or a thing that's not part of the deen. Or something made up. Or something that's according to culture or tradition. Right? We are speaking about ibadah. When it comes to worship, that worship must be in accordance with the sunnah. That's ahsan wa amala. In the way he explained it. Understand? So this is what we are asking Allah for. That that worship is the best of worship. Meaning it's with ikhlas and it's with mutaba'ah of the Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi in the way it's being done. Understand? Another way of explaining this is, Ibn Uthaymin says you get al-husnul batini wal-husnul zahiri. You get that husn which is to do that which is internal. To do that which is internal. What does this apply to? Firstly, ikhlas, as we said, it, as we said that this is for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. But also that khushu' that khushu' in your worship, that, that, that sincerity, that humility in your worship, that concentration in your worship, focusing in your worship, this is something internal. Nobody can see it on you that you are focused. You understand? If somebody can be making salah, he looks like a normal person in the salah. Like everybody else, he looks the same. But his khushu' and his sincerity reaches the heavens. Whilst the person next to him, he may look like he's extremely pious. Right? He's wearing the biggest turban. He's got a nice thawb on. And a big beard. And he looks like a, you know, like a pious person, for example. But his concentration doesn't even leave the earth, doesn't leave the floor beneath him. His concentration is non-existent. You understand? The two, don't, the two you, you can't compare the, the, the value of the two of them. The one is reaching the heavens, the other one, he may look like the more righteous worshipper, but his salah doesn't compare to the person next to him. His salah is, is nothing compared to the salah of the one next to him, for example. So this is something that comes from the inside. It's internal. Your focus, your heart, your concentration, your khushu, your ikhlas. This is one aspect of husn, ibadah, that best of worship. You understand? There's ihsan in that worship. It's ihsan, it reaches a level close to perfection. You understand? So that's one aspect. The other aspect is the external factor. The outward appearance of your ibadah. 
is also important. It's also important. There must also be husn in this. That goodness must also be within this. Right? So for example, the easiest example is to make is salah. The way that you make salah should also be outwardly according to the, to the sunnah. Right? The way you stand, where you place your hands, when do you raise the hands, when do you not raise the hands. How do you raise the hands? Do you touch your ears? Do you just raise your hands next to your ears? You know, all these details that we've been through. Where do you put your hands? On your chest, below your chest, on your navel, below your navel. These finer details that we discussed are also important. That's also part of the sunnah. It's also part of bettering your worship. How do you go down on your knees, on your hands? Whichever one you believe is right, do that. That's part of husni ibadah. The way you sit in the tashahud, either tawarruk or iftirash in the first tahiyyat. How do you point with your finger? All of these finer details and aspects of the salah is part of perfecting the salah. It's part of perfecting the salah. But Ibn Uthaymin, yeah, he says, lots of people do this. And this is a very, very important point that the Sheikh makes. He says, there are many people who are firm upon this aspect. And again, if I look around in our community, right, especially amongst the brothers and the Sunnah and so forth, many of them, they focus on this. And some of them are extremely strict on this. Some of them are over the top on this issue. That if you don't make the Salah the way they were taught, in the finer, finer details, man. Details with this valid ikhtilaf, for example, they may make a big deal out of it, but why did you go down on your knees and not your hands, you know? Not understanding the issue properly. But the point is, it's this aspect that they focus on. You know, you must pray the way the Prophet prayed. That's the hadith, we're going to discuss this hadith later on. You must make salah the way Rasulullah made salah. So yes, this is very important. Hence, we have gone through this in detail. But what's more important? What's more important is that internal aspect of husni ibadah. And many people are actually neglectful of this, right? Most of us, we focus on that external part, which is a good thing. It's a very good thing. But the more important one is to focus on the internal aspect of the salah, because that is where the real value comes. That is where the real value, you know, the rewards are really attached to. The external part is very good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to belittle it either. It's good. It must be there. But more important than that is to get your heart in the right place. To get your head in the right place. To focus on that internal ibadah and not just the external aspect of the, um, of the ibadah. And the sheikh focuses on this point which is of utmost importance. Right? It's of utmost importance. Tayyib, <coughs> any questions on this hadith? That is basically the explanation of the, of the dhikr. Allahumma, oh Allah, aid me or help me or assist me in remembering you and being grateful unto you and in worshipping you in the best manner. And in worshipping you in the best manner. So as you can see, it's a very beautiful dhikr. It's a very beautiful dua to make. You understand? Because you are asking Allah to help you. If it's not for Allah's assistance, there's no guidance for us. We're not going to achieve anything. We will not achieve anything except by the 
assistance and the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so here we're asking him to help us with the most important of issues. His remembrance, his gratefulness, and to worship him in the best manner. At most important, this, this dua is so important. Some of the scholars in fact argue that it's wajib. Some of them argue that it's wajib because the Prophet said to Mu'ah, what did he say? Don't leave it off. So this is a prohibition. As if to say, do not leave off that salah except that you make this dhikr. Hence some ulama said, it's a fard. It should be done. It must be done. Okay? Because they saw the importance of it and they saw the way the Prophet emphasized this to Mu'ad. Tayyib. So it's a very important dua. Remember what it means and recite it with meaning. When we recite this dua, we should recite it at the end or after every single salah. Never leave it off. As the Prophet said to Mu'ad, never leave it off. And recite it with meaning, with ma'ana, Ya Allah, Oh Allah, help me to remember you. Help me to be grateful unto you. And help me to be of those who worship you in the best way. Or help me to fulfill my ibadah in the best way. Whichever wording comes to mind, that's not even important. The most important thing is, you understand what you are saying. You get what you are saying. This is the most important aspect. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Um, the next hadith is narrated by Abu Umamah. Radiallahu anhu, he said that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Man qara'a ayatul kursi dubura kulli salatin maktubatin lam yamna'hu min dukhul al-jannati illa al-mawtu. Rawahu al-nasai wa sahahu ibn Hibban. Wazada fi al-tabarani wa qul huwa Allahu ahad. The hadith says that whoever recites ayatul kursi at the end of every salah, Fard salah, maktubah, which means a fard salah, nothing will prevent him from entering Jannah except death. Nothing can stop him from entering Jannah except death. Okay? And then in At-Tabarani, an additional word is mentioned, which is, and he should decide, Qul huwa Allahu Ahad, but this is actually extremely weak. So this Qul huwa Allahu Ahad is actually extremely weak. It's not part of this hadith. It's not part of this hadith. What we do know is that the three calls should still be recited after every salah, right? So that's on its own. That's a hadith on its own. The three calls should be recited after every salah, okay? As for this over here, the hadith of Ayatul Kursi, which says, so every recites Ayatul Kursi at the end of the salah, nothing will prevent him from entering Jannah except death. This does not apply to Qulu Allahu Ahad as well because that hadith is extremely weak. So this only applies to, <coughs> sorry, to Ayatul Kursi. Okay. What do we know about Ayatul Kursi? It is the greatest ayah in the Quran. It is the greatest ayah in the Quran as proven in the hadith of Ubay ibn Ka'b. Radiallahu anhu. So it's the best ayah. No other ayah is equivalent to this one verse. It's a verse of protection. It's a verse we recite after every salah. And when else do we recite this verse? Before you go sleep. What happens before you go sleep? What does the hadith say? For those who recite before they sleep. Okay, you protected. So what happened? Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu was placed in charge of the zakah. Right, the zakatul fitr. Now you know zakatul fitr at the end of the month is, is, is gathered. And it's given out, right, on Eid. 
It's given out on, on Eid to the people. So, that, so Abu Hurairah was charged with protecting it and just standing and looking over it, you know, through the night. He was given this job. So he stood, you know. And a man came and this man was taking and Abu Hurairah caught him, stealing from the Zakatul Fitr. Abu Hurairah said to him, I will take you to the Prophet in the morning. And in the morning when the Prophet is up and he's here, I will take you and he will deal with you. This man then begged Abu Hurairah for forgiveness and said to him, look, I'm desperate, I have a family, I have nothing. You know, this was out of desperation. And so Abu Hurairah let him go. The next night he caught the man again. The same thing happened. I'm going to take you to the Prophet in the morning. man begged Abu Hurairah let him go. The third night, the same thing happened. Abu Hurairah caught him. He said, the, Abu Hurairah said, this time, I'm not, not going to fall for those, I'm not going to, I'm taking you to whatever you say, right? And the man said, I will teach you something beneficial if you let me go. And so Abu Hurairah said, okay, what is it? And he said that if you recite Ayatul Kursi before you sleep, a guardian angel will be placed at your head who will protect you throughout the night until morning comes. That there will be a malaika that stands there and protects you the whole night until morning comes. The next day, when Abu Hurairah came to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet said to him, what did that prisoner say to you? Because he was already informed. What did that guy that you caught, what did he say? Abu Hurairah said, look, this is what happened, and this is what he said about Ayatul Kursi. And what did Rasulullah say to him? Sadaqaka wa huwa kathub. He said that that guy, what he said was the truth. He told you the truth, even though he's a liar. Even though he's what? He's a compulsive liar. And that was the shaitan. That was a, a shaitan. Meaning that was actually a jinn in the form of a man. That Abu Hurairah was actually speaking to. Right? And <clears throat> what this jinn said was the truth. Why do we know it's the truth? Because the Prophet affirmed what he said. If he did not affirm it, we would not believe it. Because the jinns are liars. Especially the naughty, evil jinn, they are liars. So hence, and the Prophet affirms us. They are kadub. They are compulsive liars. You shouldn't believe them. But here, what he said was the truth. Hence, we accept it. And so we recite Ayatul Kursi before we sleep, knowing that there will be an angel who will stand on God, protecting us throughout the night. Great virtue for the greatest ayah in the Quran. If what's the reward of reciting it at the end of the salah? The special benefit is nothing stopping you from Jannah except that you're still alive. Except that you, yani if you were to die and you've recited it, you will enter Jannah bi So a person who wants Jannah should make sure that after every salah he recites Ayatul Kursi. So that if he dies before the next salah, bi he can enter Jannah because of that recitation. Understand? There's great virtue in that. And it says, Alhamdulillah, it's an ayah that we all know. It's an ayah that we, we all know, right? Tayyib. Um, <clears throat> so, I'm going to go through a brief translation of this ayah. A brief, very brief uh, uh, tafsir of the ayah 
Allahu la ilaha illa huwal hayyul qayyum we should know what this means Allahu la ilaha illa hu Allah there is none worthy of worship except him we, we don't need to go into that al hayyul qayyum he is al hayy the ever living al qayyum we've explained those names we've explained the virtue of using the names together in the fiqh al asma' al husna la ta'khudhuhu sinatu wa la nawm no slumber or sleep overtakes him why is this ayah the greatest ayah because the entire ayah speaks about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, His names and His attributes. It speaks about the greatness of Allah. Hence, this is the greatest ayah. Was the subject matter, the content of this ayah is only Allah Azza wa Jal. Understand? It's only Allah Azza wa Jal. No slumber or sleep overtakes Him. And this is specific to Him alone. Every person needs to rest. Not a moment of drowsiness or weakness or even, you know, dozing off or any type of drop in energy can happen to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is at the perfect level of strength and energy at every single moment. To him belongs whatever is in the heavens, whatever is in the earth. One of Allah's names is Al-Malik, the owner. He owns everything. Everything is his. It belongs to him. We belong to Allah. He created us and we will go back to him. The jinn, the shayateen, the angels, the animals, this whole dunya, it has only one owner. And that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And likewise, every single thing in the heavens, the jannah, the different levels in jannah, the kursi, the great arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all those things belong to him and him alone. مَنْ ذَا الَّذِي يَشْفَعُ عِنْدَهُ إِلَّا بِإِذْنِهِ Who is there that will intercede with him except by his permission? And this is a question. مَنْ ذَا الَّذِي Who will do this? The answer is obviously in, in negative form. There is none. There is none that can intercede with Allah except by Allah's permission. Meaning that when it comes to intercession, nobody can claim intercession, that he will be able to do intercession, that he will be able to intercede on your behalf. Because only Allah knows who's going to, only by the permission of Allah will it happen. And this is actually a refutation on many of the, of the Sufis. Because many of the Sufi mashayikh, they tell the followers that if you take bay'ah by me, you follow me, you become my follower, and this and that, I will intercede on your behalf. I will intercede on Qiyamah, I will intercede in the grave for you. I will come into the grave and answer the questions of the grave. This is what they believe. This is what they say. This is what they teach their people and the people believe this. And the people pledge their allegiance to them. They follow the sheikh blindly. They spend money upon the sheikh. They love the sheikh. All these things happen. This is known. This is modern day tasawwuf. Sufism. But Allah has refuted them in this surah. In this ayah. None will intercede with him except those him he, he gives permission to. So we know that Rasulullah will do intercession because of the hadith. And there will be some salihin who will intercede on behalf of others. But nobody knows them except Allah. Nobody knows who they are except Allah Azza wa Jal. Allah will give certain people the permission to do it. Others will not be given the permission. Understand? So anybody who claims it, you should know automatically he's a liar. Because he doesn't even understand Ayatul Kursi. He doesn't even know what Ayatul Kursi says. How can he be such a great sheikh? He knows that which happened in the past or in the future 
and that which happened in the past. Speaking about the perfect knowledge of Allah, whatever is going to happen in the future, whatever could possibly happen had it happened is part of the knowledge of Allah. And that already is like endless. The possibilities are endless. And whatever happened in the past is preserved in the perfect knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَلَا يُحِيطُونَ بِشَيْءٍ مِنْ عِلْمِهِ إِلَّا بِمَا شَاءٍ And none will encompass any of his knowledge except those whom he permits, those whom he chooses and allows. And this teaches us what? That knowledge comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We will not achieve or acquire any knowledge except what Allah permits for us, except what Allah writes for us, except what Allah blesses us with. No knowledge and understanding will reach us except what Allah bestows upon us. So knowledge therefore has to be sought from the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Because that's the only source that we have that goes back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The wahi, revelation. If it's not revelation, then where does it come from? It comes from somewhere else. With philosophy or something, that's not exactly from revelation. So what is it? Some made up science. It's some made up stories and so forth. Right? So we go back to the correct sources where we strive to learn and understand. And this is the knowledge that Allah bestows. وَسِعَ كُرْسِيهُ السَّمَاوَةُ وَالْأَرْضِ And his kursi, this is ayatul kursi. The kursi, what is the kursi? The kursi is the footstool of Allah. The throne is the arsh. The arsh is the throne. Ar-Rahmanu ala al-arsh. Shistawa, right? Allah rose up above the throne. The kursi is the footstool. The footstool. Not the, the arsh, it's below the arsh. So the kursi is smaller than the arsh. It's much smaller than the arsh. The kursi envelopes the entire heavens and the earth. All of the heavens and the earth is what? Is, is covered by the, by the kursi. On that is the arsh which is over envelopes the whole kursi. And then it's the end of creation and then you get Allah Azza wa Jal. So the mind cannot actually understand. Our small brains and minds cannot comprehend firstly the heavens. It's too big. Never mind the kursi. Never mind the arsh. And never mind the creator of all of that. This is the greatness of Allah. This is His creation. There's aspects of creation which is too great for us to even understand. There's aspects of creation which is beyond our comprehension. What about the Creator? What about the owner of perfection? And Izza and Jalal, subhanAllah. And His preservation of the heavens and the earth does not tire Him out one bit. So Allah is the controller of the affairs. He is the Al-Qayyum. He, he exists by himself and everything exists because of him. So he upholds the heavens and the earth. Day and night. Not a moment of sleep or slumber. Yet at the same time, no exhaustion or tiredness or weakness touches him. Nothing. He's not affected by it at all. He's always in this perfect state. That he remains in at all times. And he is Al-Ali, the most high, and Al-Azim, the most great. And again, those names we'll explain in detail in the book of Asma'il Husna. Alhamdulillah. Any questions?
on Ayatul Kursi. So the Sunnah here is then to recite Ayatul Kursi at the end of every Salah. And also we said before you sleep as well. Tayyib. From Malik ibn Huwairith radiallahu anhu who said that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Sallu kama ra'aytumuni usalli. Rawahul Bukhari. Hadith in Bukhari says, Pray as you have seen me praying. Pray, make salah the way that you have seen me make salah. Tayyib. And this year was a command for the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. To make salah the same way that they saw Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam making salah. Okay. This was actually said to one particular sahabi. Malik ibn al-Huwayrith. So what happened with Malik ibn Huwayrith, radiallahu anhu, he says that there were about 20 people, youngsters, who traveled to Medina, to sit with Rasulullah and to learn from him. And they stayed there about 20 days, 20 nights. They stayed in al Madina for about 20 nights to learn from the Prophet Right? They would watch him closely. Watch whatever he did, the way he made salah, the way he did this, the way he interacted with people, and so forth, to learn from him. But what happened was, is, Malik says, that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was Rahim and Rafiqan. He was merciful and gentle. He was both merciful and gentle. And when he saw that we were longing for our families, remember these were 20 youngsters, married men. Youngster, I don't mean like 12, 13 year old. We mean men in their 20s, you know, good young shabab. When he saw that we were longing for our families, what did he say to them? He gave them permission and he gave them a concession and said to them, it's best that you go. Go home. You spend time, you've learned, go home. He said, go back to your families and teach them and, you know, teach them knowledge as you've learned from me and teach them akhlaq and etiquette and manners. إِذَا حَضَرْتَ الصَّلَاةِ Then he said, إِذَا حَضَرْتَ الصَّلَاةِ فَلْيُؤَذِّنْ لَكُمْ أَحَدُكُمْ And when the time of salah comes, one of you stand and give the adhan, give the call to prayer. And one of the things Rasulullah then said to them was, صَلُّوا كَمَا رَأَيْتُمْ أُنِي أُصَلِّي When you are with your people there, make salah the way that you saw me making salah. The way that you saw me making salah. So again, as we said, these youngsters, firstly, look at their virtue. Left their families for the sake of studying, to go and learn. We're going to go spend some time with the Prophet to learn from him, to sit at his feet and just learn as much as we can. They would have stayed, but the Prophet realized these are youngsters. He could see they're longing for their families. They're men, they have desires, they must go home, spend time with their wives as well. And he said to them, you know, it's best you go home now. And he gave them advice. Go home and teach them. Salah comes, you give the adhan. And make salah the way that you saw me making salah. Te- meaning, don't pray in any other way. As we said, this is husnul zahiri. That outer, outer appearance of the salah must also be done in the best way. The way that the Prophet did it. And this is, this is that final details that we went through. 
This is that, this is that final, de- final details that we, that, we say, that we mentioned. So hence, pray the way that you saw me pray. As best as you can. As close to the sunnah as you can. This should be our intent when making salah. Regarding the outer appearance and obviously the inner as well. This should be worked on um, as best as we possibly as best as we possibly can. Are there any questions on this hadith? Tayyib, we move on to the next hadith. There's two more hadith left, inshallah. From Imran ibn Husayn, radiyallahu anhu, he said that the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said to me, Salli qa'iman, fa'in lam tastati' faqa'idan, fa'in lam tastati' fa'ala janbin, wa'illa fa'awmi, rawahu al-Bukhari. Imran ibn Husayn, the Sahabi, radiyallahu anhu, he had a sickness, bawasir, which I believe is piles. Piles, right? Which we refer to as piles. Basically, a person with piles, his backside is obviously sore and is in some pain and therefore he's unable to sit, for example. Right? He's unable to be in certain postures depending how bad it is. So what happened was is the Prophet knowing his condition, said to him, make salah standing. Salli qa'iman. This is point number one. When you make salah, you must make salah what? Upright and standing. But if you cannot, faqa'idan, then make salah sitting down. Make salah sitting down. And if you cannot, then on your side, or laying down. Then on your side, or laying down. Okay? So first and foremost, the, the, it's actually, when it comes to the fard salah, when it comes to a fard salah, it is fard and wajib that you stand when you make salah. You're not allowed to just sit. Understand? A person is not allowed to sit in the fard salah if he's able to stand. That's point number one. When it comes to a nafil salah or a sunnah salah, he's allowed to sit. Even if he's able to stand. Did you get that? If it's a nafil salah, you are allowed to sit. If you just prayed maghrib now and you felt like praying the sunnah and out of laziness you decided I'm going to sit and make salah, your salah would be valid. The sunnah salah. But you get half the reward of standing. You get half the reward of standing. This is for the person who is able to stand, but he decides to sit for the nafil, he will get half the salah, half the reward. Okay? If he cannot stand, and it's the fard salah, then he's able to sit. He's allowed to make salah sitting down. He's allowed to make salah sitting down. Now the question obviously is, when do we say that the person is not able to, to sit? What if he stands and he's bent over? Let's say he's standing and he's, you know, standing, leaning forward, for example. He's bent forward, almost like in Rukur. But he's standing. Is that better than sitting? It's better than sitting. So the Sheikh says he should stand rather like that than sit. He should stand rather like that than sit. So when do we say that he should sit? We, should say, we say that he should sit when... It, it, it's either painful to stand or it's very uncomfortable or difficult to stand such that it takes away his khushu. It takes away the khushu. He's unable to pray steadily because he can't focus. 
because he's in difficulty. You understand? In this case, we say, then sit down. Don't put yourself into difficulty. A person whose back is sore or his leg is sore, right? He shouldn't be pushing himself through difficulty and forcing himself to stand. And the only thing he can think of is the pain in his legs or the pain in his feet. Understand? In this case, sit down so that you can pray with khushu, so that you can pray and be focused. Understand? But if you can stand somehow and be focused without being in pain and without suffering, then you should pray that way. Even if it means that you pray humping or bent over. Even if it means that you pray leaning on a stick. Leaning on a stick. That's better than sitting. If it's okay for you to do that. It all depends on the person and his condition. Understand? So there's no set rule here. These are the general guidelines that we give. And people should apply it to themselves. Right? People should be able to apply it to themselves. <coughs> so if you cannot stand, we say you can sit. How does he pray sitting down? So here sitting down means what? Sitting on the floor. This is the asl, that you sit on the, on the floor and pray. If you are able to do that. If you are able to do that, you should pray on the floor. And not just go and sit on a, on a chair. I would say the chair is for those who have serious injuries or for those who are elderly. They are unable to get onto the floor and get up. Then perhaps they can pray on a chair. Right? But if he's able to sit on the floor, he should sit on the floor. How does he sit on the floor? Knees tucked in. That's it's permissible. No problem. But the sunnah is that he prays sitting cross-legged. Mutarabbi'an. Like you cross your legs, that's how you sit. That's how you sit in the salah. Right? When it comes to the tahiyat, or between the two sajdas, he can then sit like he normally sits. You know, like iftirash. And if it's the last tahiyat, tawarruk if he can. With the, with the left foot underneath and so forth, right? We explain that in detail. But ideally, he should sit out cross-legged. And what's the hikmah in this? Firstly, the Prophet said cross-legged in the salah. In the, in the times of standing, he would sit cross-legged. In the times of the tahiyat, he would sit the way he normally sat in the tahiyat. Understand? So either iftirash or tawarrukan. Another hikmah in this is that it differentiates between the sittings. Because now you, can, now you know when this is a place of standing, I'm going to sit cross-legged. When it's a place of sitting, I'm going to sit the way I normally sit. Otherwise, you're going to sit the whole salah in the same way. You're not differentiating between the different positions. So this is the other hikmah in sitting cross-legged and then alternating to iftirash and then tawarruk and so forth. And Allah knows best. And if he's unable to sit down, he should play, pray lying down. Ala janbin or on his side. So ideally you want to pray on, on your side. Obviously the right side is preferred over the left. So you lay on your right hand side and you make salah in this manner. You make salah in this manner. If he cannot lay on his side, he can then lay on his back. If he cannot lay on his side, he can then lay on, on his back. Right? And if he cannot do that, he should only pray nodding his head. However, this part of the hadith is weak. As Ibn Uthaymin says, it's not part of the hadith. It is actually in Sahih Bukhari. There's a mistake here um, in, by the author by including it here into the, to this, this hadith. However, the Sheikh says, 
Um, what he should do is he should lay down with his feet in the direction of the qibla. If this is possible, obviously, somebody can help him. This is if not, he just lays as he is. Okay? If it's possible to you know move the bed or something, then that's good. If it's not possible, then Allah as the way he is. Right? His feet towards the qibla and he will pray with his head. So he's laying down and he will pray with his head. Meaning when it's time for rukur, he will lower his head slightly. When it's time for sujood, he will lower his head a bit more. Understand? If he's unable to move his head, he will pray with. And obviously he must recite, obviously, right? He must recite as normal, the Fatiha and so forth. Um, huh? Um, if he's unable to play with his head, then he plays with his eyes. And if he's unable to play with his eyes, he's in such a state of, of illness, then he plays with his heart. And he plays with his heart, meaning everything is in his heart, right? The ruku' he will imagine himself, the niyyah will be that I'm going to ruku' now. And I'm coming up from ruku' now. As if he's picturing the whole thing in his, in his mind. And that's his intention. Right? As Allah says, Fattakullah mastata'atum. Fear Allah as much as you can. Hold your duty to Allah <coughs> as much as you can. La yukallifullahu nafsan illa wus'aha. Right? This obviously applies in this case over here. Allah doesn't burden you more than you can be. Right? The most important thing is, you never skip the salah. Not even that person who's bedridden can skip the salah. Even if there's nobody to help him with wudu. Even if there's nobody to help him with the wudu, he should pray as he is. Even if his aura is exposed, he should pray as he is. Nobody can help him or her. Put a scarf on her head, tuck her hair in. She should pray as she is laying in the bed. No problem. Because that's the best she can do. The most important thing is what? The salah is never to be skipped. Not even for that person who is extremely ill in bed. And, and they cannot even move their head. They can pray. If they're only praying in their mind, Alhamdulillah, they pray. They will get the full reward of praying like they would normally pray. Understand? The Sheikh says, even if the thawb has najis on it, let's say they wet the bed, old person, right? Nobody to clean them. The waqt salah has come. They can pray in that state. Do they have to repeat the salah later on? They don't have to repeat the salah either. They pray as they are and they continue. Alhamdulillah. Tayyib. So this is also somehow to do with the description of the salah for those who are unable to stand, for those who are unable to sit, for those who are on their side, for those who have to pray with their head, for those who have to pray with their eyes, or for those who pray with their hearts. <coughs> the last hadith is narrated from Jabir radiallahu anhu. أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال لمريض صلى على وساده فرمى بها وقال The Prophet saw a man making salah or a sujood on a cushion on a cushion a sick man, a man who's ill فرمى بها So the Prophet pushed the cushion away he pushed the cushion away he took it and he basically shoved it and he 
almost like he threw it away, right? Or to the side, basically. And then he said, Salli ala al-ardi in istata'ta. Pray or make your sajda on the floor or on the ground if you are able to. Wa illa fa'awmi ima'an. If you cannot, then nod with your head. Waj'al sujoodaka akhfada min ruku'ika. And make your sujood lower than your ruku'. Make your sujood lower than your ruku'. This hadith is in al-bayhaqi with a strong chain of narration. Walakin sahaha bu hatim waqfahu. Tayyib. So, as we said, this hadith actually applies to the sajda. The applies to the sajda. That when you make sajda, if you are able to, you must make on the, onto the ground. You have to make your sajda onto the, onto the ground. If you are unable to do that, then what must you do? You bow with your head, not, not with your head. So in this case, this man was ill. So what did he do? He took a massive, like a big pillow, and he was unable to bow onto the floor or put his head onto the floor. So instead he, it's as if he got like a raised platform, you know? And so he would just put his head on there, making sajda on there. So let's say I took this table, or I used that, what's that thing called the ottoman, and I put that in front of me, and when I, I, I'm unable to hit the ground, so what do I do? I make my sujood onto that thing. You understand? As opposed to going all the way down because I'm unable. <coughs> the prophet said, don't do this. You must go onto the ground. If you're not able to, then just bow. But you're not allowed to bring the ground closer to your head or bring something else to be a substitute. This is going into like a type of extremism. So what you should do is, if you're unable to do that, just bow with your head. Just bow with your head. Right? And when it's rukur, it should be to a certain level. And when it's sujood, it should be to a, a lower level. So your bowing with your head will be to a, a lower level than the bowing of the rukur. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Understand this hadith? And that is basically the end of that hadith. Okay? And... Um, Was it? Tayyib. That's the end of the chapter, alhamdulillah, of the description of the salah. That's the end of the chapter of the description of the salah. We'll move on to the next chapter next week, bi'idnillah, which deals with sujudu sahwi, which deals with the, the prostration of forgetfulness, insha'Allah ta'ala. Um, What I will do is, just before we wrap up, is to do a quick or brief run through the description of the salah, right? <coughs> As we explained it, but briefly. So when we start, we obviously start with the takbiratul ihram, right? We have to raise the hands and we say Allahu Akbar, right? So we raise the hands either with our fingertips level with our ears or our earlobes, or our fingertips will be level with the chest. The chest, shoulders. Either option, try to do both. Sometimes this, sometimes that. Allahu Akbar. We put our hand, right hand over the left. Right? And we look at the place, the place of prostration. Okay? So we have to put the right over the left. That's the clear sunnah. And then we said it's better to put it onto your chest and above the navel, not on or below the, the navel. <coughs> 
okay? And we said that there's three ways of, of doing this. Either your right hand on top of your left hand, or your right hand on your wrist. So your fingers are on your forearm and the back of your hand, right hand is on the back of your left hand, or your right hand is on the forearm, right? So you look at the place of prostration, that's how you remain standing throughout the salah. The first thing we recite is opening supplication. We got different options. Wajahtu wajahiyah li fatra samawat wal ard. Or Subhanakallahumma bihamdik wa tabarakasmik wa ta'ala jadduk. Or Allahu Akbar kabira wa alhamdulillahi kathira wa subhanallahi bukira tawasila. Or Allahumma ba'id bayni wa bayna khatayik ma ba'ata bin al-mashriq wa al-maghrib. We explain this hadith in this class. Right? You can take any one of them, try to mix and match, as we said. Right? This is tanawu' meaning you can different up. The, the more you do, the better. Sometimes this one, sometimes that one. Then we say, A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem. We seek refuge in Allah from shaytan to help us focus, to get the shaytan away. Or we can say, A'udhu billahi sami'il alim minash shaytanir rajeem min hamzihi wa nafkhi wa nafthihi. We explain this as well. Then we say the basmalah. If the imam is reciting loud, you should say the basmalah softly. And then he starts with the hamd. Alhamdulillah rabbil alameen. He will read the rest of the fatiha loud. Right? Wala dhalin. Amin is to be said loudly, and those behind him should also say it loudly, right? And the re- there's a reward in that. Whoever's amin coincides with the amin of the malaika, the hadith says that his sins are forgiven. The imam then recites a surah, whatever he wants of the Quran, be explained. Maghrib should be short, Isha slightly longer, Fajr longest, Zuhr a bit long, and Asr in between, right? Um, <clears throat> he then says, Allahu Akbar, he raises the hands, again, right, again, either up to the earlobes or to the shoulders, and he goes into Ruku'. When he's in Ruku', the issue of Tuma'nina now starts. He has to be stable, constant, right, so that his bones are all straight, no moving around. This is Tuma'nina, right, he has to be still. And he says, Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim, Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim, Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim. And there are other sunnah adhkar to make in the ruku' as well. Right? Um, Subbuh Qudus, for example, Subhanadil Jabalut, Al Malakut, Al Kibriya, Al Adama, for example, Subhanallah, Wabi Hamdi. What is the others? There are others. Right? Sami Allah, Al Manhamida, raises the hands again. Then he drops the hands, leaves it by his sides. According <coughs> to most scholars, some scholars we said, put his hands on the chest. Whichever view the person follows, this is an issue of ikhtilaf. We don't criticize either way. Rabbana wa lakal hamd is fard. Hamdan kathiran tayyiban barakan fi good. Mil asamat wal ard, mil al ard, etc. If he can do all of that, excellent. Then, Allahu Akbar, he goes into sujood. Right? He doesn't raise the hands again. He goes into sujood. We said we prefer the view of the, the knees first over the hands. Right? If a person wants to do hands first, he believes that's right, no problem. Right? He goes down on his knees first into sujood. In the sujood, again, there must be, or firstly, before he goes into sujood, when he says, Rabbana wa alhamd, there must be tuma'nina. He must be completely still. Right? You can't say, Rabbana wa alhamd, and be moving. He must be dead still. We explain this in detail. Into sujood, his hands will be, fingers should be together. The fingers should be together, not apart. And um, what are the sunnahs of the sujood? 
your feet should be together, so your heels are brought close to each other. And then, obviously you prostrate upon seven parts of the body. The toes must, you must try to bend the toes at such that it is facing the Qibla. You are on your toes there, you are on your two knees. The another sunnah is that your thighs shouldn't be touching your, your, your upper body. So that you're not, you know, slouched into the sujood such that your, your, your thighs, there must be a gap between your thighs and your body. I think the hadith mentions that a small little, like lamb or something, could pass through that gap. Right? So you should be opened up in the sujood actually. Okay? And your arms must be off the ground, meaning your elbows off the ground. The Prophet at times used to open his, his arms up such that you could see the whiteness of his armpits. Right? Obviously the forehead must be on the ground. Your nose must be on the ground. Right? The, the fingers are pointing forward towards this, the Qibla. And you say, Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la, Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la, Oh, wa bihamdihi, no problem, Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la. <coughs> and again, there's many adhkar to recite in the sujood. And one of the best places to make dua in the sujood, because that's the closest you get to your Lord. Then he comes up, Allahu Akbar. He sits how? With his hands on his thighs or on his knees. And... With the right foot propped up, and he's sitting on the left foot, iftirash. So you're sitting on your left foot with your buttocks, and your right foot is propped up straight, and you say, Rabbi Ghfidli, Rabbi Ghfidli, and you can say it more than that, Rabbi Ghfidli, Rabbi Ghfidli, if you want to. Or you can say the long one, Rabbi Ghfidli, Warhamni, Wajiburni. Right? You can say that one, which is also, also good. Alternate between them. Allahu Akbar, back into sujood the same, and then Allahu Akbar, all the way up to the Fatiha. Okay, there's a difference of opinion. Some scholars say you must do the sitting before you go straight up. Some scholars say you don't have to. We again said difference of opinion, no problem. Even with Ayyamin, the view we gave was go straight up. Except if you need to sit. Okay, then the first thing you say is, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem. Because the correct view, and Allah knows best, is to say A'udhu Billahi in every rak'ah. That's best. To say A'udhu Billahi in Every rak'ah and not only the first rak'ah. A'udhu billahi shaitan rajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. The Fatiha. Another surah. Generally shorter than the first rak'ah. Allahu Akbar into ruku the same. Samuel Allah Muhammad the same. Sujood the same. Rabbi Ghfili the same. Sujood the same. Into the tahiyat. The first tahiyat you will sit again. Iftirashan. On your left foot. You will sit with your left foot flat. With your right foot propped up. Left hand on the thigh or on the knee. Right hand will be pointing with the finger immediately. So as soon as you come into the tahiyat, you start pointing. Not when it gets to the end or only by illallah. There's no evidence for any of that. As soon as you sit in the tahiyat, you start, you start pointing. Right? Two ways of holding the finger. Like this. You can, um, so these two fingers are flat. These two fingers are flat on your thigh, right? You make a ring like this with these two fingers, your, your, your thumb and your middle finger. So your, in, your pinky, your baby finger, and this ring finger on your left, your right hand will be flat. And you point with the, the tashahud or the index finger, the sababa, right? And the sunnah is to look at the finger. To look at the finger, hadith in Abu Dawud says, in the tashahud, the Prophet used to look at his finger and not the place of prostate. The rest of the salah, you're looking where? 
place of prostration. In the tashahud, you look at your finger. So you start the tashahud at tahiyyatul mubarakat salawat till ashadu ala ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna muhammad rasulullah. And then, Allahu Akbar. Right? So you go forward onto your hands. You put your hands on the ground and you, and you, and you go up. That's the sunnah way to get up. Okay? So if you got up differently, there's no harm. But the sunnah is actually to lean forward. Right? Put your hands on the ground and get up. There is a hadith which some scholars use where, they, where the Prophet said that you, you go down on your fists like a, like a person who is needing dough. Right? But most ulama say this hadith is weak. Most of the scholars say this hadith is weak. I think Shaykh Albani says it's sahih. So if you check in Shaykh Albani's book, he mentions the sunnah. To go down, put your fists on the ground and go up. But most say it's weak, so they say you just go down on your, on your hands. Right? <clears throat> you go all the way up. Now what do you do? The first thing you do is you raise your hands. Because you raise your hands after the first tashahud. After the first tashahud, when you extend all the way up, you raise the hands back onto the chest. Read the Fatiha. You down into the third rakah, the same. And this time you only read the Fatiha. No surah after the Fatiha. Everything else will be the same. Except in the last tashahud, you will not sit iftirashan, you will sit tawarrukan, which means you sit on the floor. So your buttocks is on the floor and your right foot is propped up again and your left foot comes underneath you. Alright? You sit like that. The tashahud will be the same. You point with your finger the same. At-tahiyyatul mubarakat salawat. Ashadu ala ilaha illallah wa ashadu muhammad rasulullah. And now you add. Allahumma salli ala muhammad wa ala ala muhammad kama salli ta'ala ibrahim wa ala ala ibrahim al-kahamir majid. Allahumma barik ala muhammad wa ala muhammad kama barak ta'ala ibrahim wa ala ala ibrahim al-kahamir majid. That's the best way to do it by the way. Right? Then. اللهم إني أعوذ بك من عذاب جهنم ومن عذاب القبر ومن فتنة المحيا والممات ومن شر فتنة المسيح الدجال then إني أذد عاي وأنا ميك اللهم إني على ذكرك اللهم إني ظلمت نفسي ظلما كثيرا right and there are other du'as in the sunnah or you can make any du'a that you want to make and then السلام عليكم ورحمة الله to the right السلام عليكم ورحمة الله to the left and you done أستغفر الله أستغفر الله أستغفر الله اللهم أنت السلام وبيك السلام تبارك الله الجلال والكرام لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له الملك والحمد لله على كل شيء قدير اللهم لا مانع لما أعطيت ولا معتل لما مات ولا ينفع ذا الجد منك جد لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له الملك والحمد لله على كل شيء قدير لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله لا إله إلا الله ولا نعبد إلا إياه له النعمة وله الفضل وله الثناء الحسن لا إله إلا الله مخلصون له الدين ولو كان الكافرون رايت سبحان الله ثري تايمز بيكسبلين ذس لاست ويك أثينك the different options. Ayatul Kursi, the three quls, and any other dhikr that you didn't make, like Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-bukhul, wa'udhu bika min al-jubin, a'udhu bika min an-uradda ila arud al-umur. We explained this last week as well. Or Allahumma a'ini ala dhikrika if you didn't do it before the taslim. Say it afterwards, and so forth. Right? And then you are done with that salah. Then comes the sunnah, and so forth. This in a nutshell is the sunnah way of making salah and Allah knows best. Understand, if you can make it like this, then in terms of the zahiri, the outward appearance of your salah, it will be according to the sunnah bi ta'ala. With, yeah, and there is difference of opinion over certain issues, but that's overlookable, right? That we can tolerate that. And, but in general terms, that is the prophetic way of making salah bi ta'ala. After that, we need to focus and work on our internal aspect and the khushu' and the ikhlas 
and the focus and the concentration of the salah, um, <coughs> which is the most important. And may Allah facilitate it for us. I mean, wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.